Hello, and welcome to the American Civil War Podcast, Episode 24, The Rail Splitter, Lincoln and the Republican Convention. The process of advancing Abraham Lincoln from failed Illinois politician to National Party champion began, if not immediately, then not very long after his defeat at the hands of Stephen Douglas in 1858. Though knocked down and temporarily despondent, Lincoln recovered his balance and sense of purpose quickly. He then set off to pursue electoral success once more. That being said, we should note that at this time Lincoln knew a simple fact that he was not a realistic presidential candidate, and he made no bones about it. He knew as well as anyone that he didn't look like a presidential candidate. He didn't have an education from a famous college, or any college at all for that matter, on top of his rather mediocre electoral record. To one such inquiry, he laughed and remarked, Just think of a sucker as me, President. That all being said, Lincoln kept his political ambitions he was just still looking below the top seat. If he couldn't become President, he remained committed to his political ideals, and just possibly he might become Vice President, thereby entering the Senate via another route. If the front-runner, New York Governor William Seward, became the Republican nominee as expected, then he would probably need a running mate from the Midwest, a role for which Lincoln had already received some support in 1856. Alternatively, Lincoln might receive a role in the cabinet. In any case, none of that would matter if the Republicans lost the 1860 election, and so many of his actions and intentions in this moment revolved around ensuring party unity and strength. In the process of doing this, Lincoln discovered just how important he was for the very first time. When party splits occurred within Illinois, all eyes immediately turned to him to resolve them, which he worked to do in a way that satisfied or at least did not deeply offend all parties. In Illinois, this mostly expressed itself as a struggle between Norman Judd, a party leader and manager, and John Wentworth, a prominent Republican sympathizing newspaper editor. At the same time, Lincoln had to defend against flank attacks from both Stephen Douglas, at that time preparing the ground for his own presidential campaign, and remnant know-nothingism trying to pull the Republicans into their orbit. Lincoln was far from alone in his problems, but it's important to see that he now felt no hesitation about putting forth his ideas onto the party's national agenda. As part of that effort, Lincoln collected reports of documentation from his dramatic debating debut and duel with Douglas and arranged to publish them. These turned out to be an overnight success, so Lincoln took an unexpected advantage in the race to come. But Old Abe wasn't done trying to expand his influence. As part of his outreach effort, he made his first trip to New York, actually the East in general, upon an invitation of William Cullen Bryant. Bryant, another influential editor, but known today more for his poetry, had something of a similar background to Lincoln, except he happened to be born in Massachusetts. On February 27th, 1860 in New York City. Lincoln entered the Cooper Institute and delivered one of his most carefully developed works. In this speech, usually known as the Cooper Union speech, Lincoln sought to expound and unify his party. He declared what he thought the Republicans were, what they ought to be, and most importantly, why slavery had to be opposed. He naturally took the opportunity to carefully calibrate his response to the recently failed insurrection by John Brown. He condemned the cruelty of the crime, but acknowledged the ideals behind it. 
This is arguably a very convenient position, but the audience was primed and ready to hear just this very message. Lincoln accidentally succeeded beyond his hopes and dreams. Literally, he actually found himself so much in demand as a speaker that he had to write up new speeches immediately, delivering them in a quick tour around the eastern states that would become crucial to victory in October. By the end of his travels, Lincoln looked much more like a presidential candidate, and he knew it. He wrote to a man who he now regarded as a friend, Senator Lyman Trumbull, and admitted, The taste is in my mouth a little. However, Lincoln only had a few months left to sow the seeds of his political harvest, and he was up against several of the most influential and calculating politicians of his age. He also had several other disadvantages. Salmon P. Chase and William Seward both had far more material resources and public notoriety, both of which were hardly irrelevant in terms of getting supporters into the public eye. Lincoln had no agent as famous or effective as Seward's close ally, Thurlow Weed, a political operator of rare ability. That said, he did have loyal friends who proved equal to the occasion. Apart from the aforementioned Judd and Wentworth, he also had the less well-known political manager David Davis on his side. Davis, a very talented dealmaker in his own right, would become crucial to Lincoln's victory in the Republican National Convention. And in a convention, Lincoln would also be denied the use of his most effective weapon, himself. In this particular age, politicians of presidential standing were certainly expected to deliver speeches, but it was not considered proper for them to openly campaign for office. Both Abraham Lincoln and Stephen Douglas skirted this uh, unofficial rule by delivering speeches for a cause or for other candidates in Illinois, even though they would benefit. Yet as the Republican convention loomed ever closer, Lincoln would need to persuade others to speak for him. So, having risen to prominence by his oratorical skills, he now couldn't employ them. Or at least he could not employ them directly, a key distinction. He continued to send letters and otherwise communicate on behalf of Illinois Republicans with an eye towards laying the groundwork for his own presidential candidacy. However, in April of 1860, the whole political world went upside down. In that month, the scheduled Democratic National Convention took place. Now, in American politics, the Democrats traditionally hold theirs before the Whig or Republican conventions. This was just very normal. But this month, at this convention, the nation witnessed the final shattering of the party of Jefferson and Jackson. Now, this is a story that we'll get into next episode. But the key takeaway was that it adjourned without even selecting a presidential candidate. That had to be delayed to a later time. The Republican convention, therefore, had the opportunity to choose their candidate first, and they did so in the presumption that Stephen Douglas remained the Democrats' frontrunner despite his failure to immediately take the prize. This probably gave some advantage to both Abraham Lincoln, but also William Seward over other candidates. Now, Seward was the strong candidate in most of the North. Seward had support for the presidency even within Lincoln's own state, and therefore, from Lincoln's point of view, uniting everyone at home became the first critical task. Now, before the National Republican Convention, there was a state convention in Illinois, and that was to decide whom to support. Now, one of Lincoln's supporters happened upon the brilliant idea of displaying a pair of wooden rails that Lincoln probably split years upon years earlier. Of course, Lincoln never liked hard labor, 
although he was pretty good at it, but he really had been a rail splitter. So more or less the nickname stuck, and he became known as the rail splitter ever since. This was a clever bit of political theater, but with a point, to emphasize his humble origins and build a connection to the common men of the country. Not surprisingly, after seeing this one, Illinois Republicans agreed that Lincoln deserved their support. Lincoln's next significant challenge was to find a way to ensure that Seward didn't win the presidential nomination on the first ballot. His power here was all too limited. But he did talk to a number of others, and he went to great lengths to secure support from neighboring Indiana. The Indiana Republican delegation agreed to give Lincoln crucial first-round voting support, though of course anything beyond that would be determined by politics. But showing strength early on, winning something on that early balloting, that was crucial for Lincoln's strategy. He knew that Seward was going to have stronger political forces going into the Republican convention. But Lincoln might have an advantage if it turned into a contest of endurance. Now another complication lay in the arrival of the Whig Party. So yes, the Whigs don't really exist anymore. But somehow they returned in the guise of the Constitutional Union Party. Now in truth, this was a gathering of a handful of old politicians who were trying to ease national tensions over slavery. They had very little to speak of for a platform or a political following, representing only the most conservative politicians trying to avoid yet more agitation. They launched the Bell Everett ticket, which is a whole story on its own, and this might garner support in the Upper South. And it could prevent any other party from winning, which would, in theory, allow them to play kingmaker, this was actually not a terrible strategy, because there's a clause in the Constitution which, in the event that no one wins the presidential election, throws it into the House of Representatives. The Constitutional Union Party might have a lot more leverage if that happened. The only problem was they really didn't have much party structure, and, well, they're just going to vanish again right after the election. The key for the Republicans was that by existing, the Constitutional Unionists removed most of the opportunity to pick up votes at the border states. This simplified the Republican political calculus, but it also increased Lincoln's challenge. Seward was desperately unpopular in the border states. Now that neither he nor the Republicans could or even needed to worry about those states, well, that ironically strengthened his political position. However, Lincoln and Illinois Republicans capably shifted the momentum in his favor during the preparations for the convention itself. Holding it somewhere in the West was a given, but by some clever arguments, Lincoln supporters were able to ensure it would be held at Chicago. Chicago, Illinois was a key stronghold for Republicans. Illinois was a key state that Republicans had to win in order to contest the presidency, and they all knew it. So holding the convention there would help cement support for Lincoln. At the same time, few Republican Party insiders outside Illinois and its neighboring states really looked at Lincoln as a serious candidate even now, and so many of the Eastern Republicans overlooked that they had implicitly handed Old Abe a substantial advantage. And that was actually a key point. Even with his newfound fame and political strength, Abraham Lincoln was still sufficiently unknown among Easterners that quite a few smart party insiders entirely missed his rising importance. In part, it was merely that most western states lacked the influence of the east. The Atlantic states, even at this time, heavily concentrated publishing, rail shipping, 
international trade, and much more. There was nothing in the West to compete with New York. And yet, the West was growing faster than ever as immigrants arrived by the thousands and tens of thousands, transforming inland villages into cities almost overnight. Somewhat surprisingly, the convention hall itself was a brand new temporary structure which perhaps demonstrated that very fact. The delegates immediately dubbed it the Wigwam due to the large curved roof. Built in merely one month, it was large enough to hold a tenth of the entire population of Chicago if they so cared to meet, and the space was plenty big enough for even the largest party meeting. It also may have symbolized to the Republicans themselves the might of the industrial north and the efficiency of its tough-minded workers. Now, in the run-up to the meeting, Abraham Lincoln supporters went to some lengths to fill the wigwam with more than their fair share of said tough-minded workers. David Davis printed up quite a few counterfeit tickets and handed them out to friends. Now, these people wouldn't swing any votes, but it was hoped that a few extra vigorous cheers on the convention floor would help to create some momentum for Lincoln when the time came. As the convention delegates arrived in Chicago, the biggest question wasn't yet who would become the presidential candidate, so much as which candidate would be best for the party as a whole. Seward, despite his popularity within the Republicans, had significant weaknesses as a candidate. He had acquired, perhaps unfairly, a reputation as a radical due to his famous irrepressible conflict speech in 1858. Though he was hardly the first man to do so, his speech portrayed the nation as riven by the split between slavery and freedom, and claimed that these sides would end in an inevitable feud. Of course, in the 1850s, heading into the Civil War, that looked pretty accurate. Lincoln, by contrast, had less visibility, but also a reputation as a moderate, despite using his house-divided metaphor so often that it became identified with him. As the most prominent Republican in the Midwest, he had a critical advantage in several states the Republicans had lost in 1856, but desperately needed in 1860. He had also made friends and allies among the Democrats, many of which were already wavering in their party loyalty and just might switch to the Republicans. Uniquely among the candidates on offer, he had just been slugging it out with Stephen Douglas again and again and again. The final aspect that had to be considered were the other candidates and how best to deal with them. The strongest, apart from Seward, appeared to be Simon Cameron of Pennsylvania and Salmon P. Chase. However, both these men had deep faults of their own. Cameron had a reputation, at best, of being a slimy and corrupt operator who couldn't be trusted with power, although the reality is potentially a bit different. By contrast, Salmon Chase's integrity was his strength, completely unassailable. But he was just plain disliked. His commitment to abolition was unquestionable. But his abrasive character and constant self-promotion equally unquestionable. Besides, Republicans already looked strong in Pennsylvania and competitive in Ohio, so that reduced their electoral importance as individuals. David Davis ignored a personal request from Lincoln to make no contracts that will bind me, replying to his team on the ground that Lincoln wasn't present and therefore couldn't gainsay them. Davis would, in turn, figure out ways to appease all Republican factions and promise cabinet seats to major party leaders. That said, we cannot overemphasize the importance of these bargains or view them as corrupt. Political deal-making and alliance were hardly unique to Lincoln in this era or really any era in American politics. Besides, they quite obviously only mattered if Lincoln first won the nomination and then won the presidential race. 
On the flip side, Lincoln supporters entertained similar offers from Seward's man in Chicago, Thurlow Weed. Like his namesake, Weed was a tough sprout that thrived among the foundations of New York City. Though there was always the drip of unsavory aspects to his political bargaining, he may also have been the most clever and cunning political operator of the age. Weed also had a massive war chest of campaign funds and had no problem offering aid to party organizations in any state. Thurlow Weed wanted to win Seward the nomination, yes, but he just plain wanted to win the election for the Republicans, too. On May 18, 1860, convention-goers turned in the first round of ballots at the Wigwam. With Chicago overflowing with convention-goers and journalists covering the events, it was still probably a surprise to almost everyone to see the almost unknown Lincoln receive a powerful first-round showing. Seward, as expected, had the support of New England and most of the Mid-Atlantic with 173 votes out of 233 needed to clinch victory. But Lincoln achieved a very credible 102 himself. Other candidates, including Chase and Cameron, received 50 or fewer. And then, because the other candidates showed weakness, their support could be expected to drop over the next few voting rounds. Now, the real test would be for David Davis to corral some of those votes into the Lincoln camp. In Springfield, Lincoln received a telegram of the results, and made his way over to the local telegraph office in order to receive the news more speedily. By the time he arrived there, the second round results had already come in. Seward had barely gained 10 votes, but Lincoln shot ahead to 181. The strategy was working. Other delegations were swinging behind the strong horse. Up in Chicago, the third round of voting commenced, and still more votes gathered behind the Lincoln banner. He accumulated over 230, just three shy of what he needed. Then, an Ohio representative leaped from his chair and announced four more votes for Lincoln. The Seward faction, seeking to support where they could not rule and taking their defeat in good grace, quickly moved to make the decision unanimous. Up in the rafters, the cheers went wild. Mr. A. Lincoln heard about the news shortly thereafter. He calmly shook the hands of a few well-wishers and headed home. This time, there was no slip, no fall, and no hard life lesson to learn. This was a victory. Now, we can scarce imagine what Mrs. Lincoln felt at the news. But if nothing else, there was probably a certain amount of well-earned self-regard. Years past, she had married a frontier lawyer who, though on the rise, was by no means an obvious catch. She witnessed the goodness in him then, and stood behind him all the tough years to follow. So we should grant her now a moment of satisfaction that the rest of the country had finally followed suit. If nothing else, the nomination probably offered Lincoln, too, some of the gratification that the last few years had lacked. Win or lose, he had finally proven himself a great party leader. Right at that moment, any goal and any height must have seemed achievable. All that being said, the next few months were filled with as much frustration and hard work as fellowship. In addition to throngs of admirers, Lincoln now had to remain carefully silent on many topics and avoid the active politicking that was, in this age, considered beneath active presidential candidates. He would have very little to do in public until the presidential election. Again, this does not mean that he would be idle or remain silent. Instead, Lincoln took up his pen with zeal. 
For months, he would be constantly at work messaging, arranging, allying, supporting, and pacifying. In a way, this is Lincoln at his most presidential, not doing visible public work, but instead performing all the tedious but necessary functions to make victory possible. Now, in two or three episodes, we are going to come back to discuss some of the other consequences of the convention, including the vice presidential candidate. However, for now, we're going to leave Lincoln here, at his home in Springfield, working behind the scenes to become President of the United States in 1860. Instead, next time we're going to look at the Democrats and examine how it all went so very badly, horribly wrong for them. We will witness, if not quite the fall of Stephen Douglas, then the first great check to his ambitions. There will be not one, but two Democrat candidates in 1860, and the consequences would effectively destroy the party. This has been the American Civil War Podcast. Thank you for listening, and I hope you'll join us next time.